Welcome to episode 25 of History Stories for My Son, the podcast where we remember that history is a story that should be shared with every generation. As always, I'd ask that if you like this podcast and would like to see it continue, please take a minute to subscribe, rate, and review, and share it with your friends. Also check out our website, www.historystoriesformyson.com. This week, I'm going to tell you the story of Frederick Douglass, greatest abolitionist leader of the 19th century. September 3rd. 1838, Baltimore, Maryland, a slave state. A young man walks across the cobblestone street, approaching the railroad station. His heart pounds, but he tries to appear nonchalant. He is a slave, you see, and this is his second attempt to escape from slavery. The last attempt failed due to the betrayal of another slave he had trusted with the plan, and it had taken him two years since that failure to find another opportunity. He does not think he'll get a third. Slaves who escape twice tend to be made examples of. He disguised himself as a free black sailor in a red shirt, sailor cap, and black cravat about his neck. In his pocket, he clutches a sailor's protection pass, borrowed from an actual free sailor, which can be presented in lieu of free papers that African Americans were obliged to carry with them everywhere they went in slave country. He does not like the keen eyes of the ticket agent. Even though he has money borrowed from his beloved, a free woman of color, He skips the ticket line. Instead, he finds a secluded spot near the end of the station and waits until the train starts moving. He has to time it just right. If he moves too soon, he might be stopped. If he moves too late, the train will be out of reach. He gauges his moment, takes several heavy breaths, and then sprints like his life depends on it. In a very real sense, it does. He makes it to the door of the colored train car, and in the last burst of energy, leaps and pulls himself aboard. Glancing back, he sees no sign anyone noticed his dash to freedom. He takes his seat among the other colored passengers, some glancing at him curiously, but none questioning his presence. Long minutes later, a conductor enters the colored car to check free papers, as he was obliged to do by slave state law. I suppose you have your papers, the conductor asked the young man. No, sir. I never carry my free papers to see with me, the man answers. But you have something to show you are a free man, have you not? Yes, sir. I have a paper with an American eagle on it. Uh, That will carry me around the world. The young man presents the conductor with the sailor's protection pass. It does indeed have a very impressive and official eagle seal upon it, which the conductor examines with some interest. The young man tries to appear calm, but it is difficult, 
the man he borrowed the pass from does not actually look much like him. If the conductor bothers to carefully read the description, he'll realize it is not the man in front of him. The young slave knows that his entire life hangs in the balance on how thoroughly the conductor does his job. The conductor hands the document back and moves on to check the next man's papers. The rest of the train ride goes smoothly, although agonizingly slowly, time magnified by the realization that he could be arrested at any time as he passes through the slave states of Maryland and Delaware. Even that is not the end of the ordeal. It's not even the closest he comes to discovery. A river crossing necessitates taking a ferry and then boarding another train on the other side. As he boards, he spots two white men he recognizes, both of whom knew him well enough to expose him. One takes no notice, but the other, a German blacksmith, sees him. They lock eyes. The escaped slave is certain he sees both recognition and realization in that gaze. And the blacksmith knows exactly what he's doing. The moment seems to stretch out to eternity until finally, seeming to come to a decision, the blacksmith shifts his gaze without comment and goes on with his business. In less than 24 hours, the man who the world would know as Frederick Douglass set foot on the free soil of New York City and began life as a free man. This is his story. It is a story that started sometime in February of 1818 on a plantation in Talbot County, Maryland, where a child by the name of Frederick Bailey was born. He never knew his exact birth date, but chose to celebrate it on February 14th because his mother called him Little Valentine. His mother was a slave of mixed African, European, and Native American ancestry. His father, so everyone whispered, was his master, a white man. He was separated from his mother at a very young age, which was common at the time, and lived with his grandmother until, at the age six, he was moved to another plantation where his probable father, a man by the name of Aaron Anthony, worked as an overseer. Anthony died two years later in 1826, leaving the boy now eight, an orphan. Then in the first stroke of luck in his young life, the boy was sent to serve a man named Hugh Alt in Baltimore, who happened to have a kind-hearted wife. She took a liking to the boy, and recognizing his intelligence, taught him to read. This was extremely unusual. It was taboo, and in some places, outright illegal to teach a slave to read. Indeed, when her husband found out what she had done, he was furious. Reading might encourage a slave to desire freedom and perish the thought. He forced her to stop teaching him. But it was too late. A new world had been opened to the child, and he wasn't about to go back to ignorance. He continued his own education in secret, reading newspapers, pamphlets, books, and anything else he could get his hands on. And Hugh Alt was right about one thing. Reading about freedom and human rights did make him desire those things for himself. 
the boy started teaching other slaves to read. Even as he was passed along from master to master, at one point starting a Bible study that lasted six months until angry slave owners burst in with clubs to put a stop to it. Finally, in 1833, the now 15-year-old Frederick was sent to a, quote, slave breaker, a uh, poor farmer who had a reputation of being particularly cruel and that other slave owners would lend their slaves out to expressly for the purpose of having him beat the spirit out of them. And indeed, Frederick was beaten and whipped relentlessly. For a time, he would later say he was broken, physically, mentally, even spiritually. And then, when he was 16, in the midst of yet another beating, some spark of life he'd thought extinguished kindled in him. He decided then and there that he would stand up for himself and accept the consequences, no matter how dire. As the brutal slave-breaker raised his whip for another lash, Frederick turned and fought back. He fought and won, striking his tormentor to the ground. The man never tried to beat him again. You might be wondering how it was that Frederick wasn't lynched. Slaves had been killed for far less. Who can say? Maybe the man was embarrassed to admit that he lost a fight to a slave. Maybe his evil had limits, and he wasn't willing to see the teenager killed over the matter. We'll never know, he didn't say. But Frederick would forever say that the moment he fought back was the moment he became a man. From there, he spent some time being hired out as a laborer, his wages going to his master, of course. He tried to escape for the first time at the age of 18, got caught and punished, and planned his second attempt more cautiously. He had spent time hired out to work on the docks in Baltimore, where he learned something of nautical life and befriended a free black sailor who lent him his credentials. It was also in Baltimore where he fell in love with a free colored woman who lent him some money. With their help, he launched his second successful escape attempt, which brings us back to where we started. Upon reaching free country, the first thing Frederick did was marry the woman who helped him escape, Anna Murray. The couple then promptly moved from New York, which was still dangerous, with slave catchers roaming the streets to collect bounties and return escapees back to the South. So they moved to safer territory, abolitionist territory, New Bedford, Massachusetts. It was there, partially to confuse any slave hunters who might still be after them, that he legally changed his name and became Frederick Douglass. Douglass was not content with his own freedom and felt driven to bring freedom to people still in bondage. He started attending abolitionist meetings and became close friends with the prominent abolitionist leader William Lloyd Garrison, who mentored him and brought him to prominence within the abolitionist community. When he spoke at these meetings, Frederick Douglass found that people listened. They were drawn in by his powerful gifts as a storyteller combined with his personal experience with slavery. He was soon being invited to abolitionist meetings throughout free country to tell his tale. In 1845, he wrote the book that made him famous, Narrative of the Life of Frederick Douglass, an American Slave. It became an instant bestseller and astonished people. Here was a man who just a few years ago had been property, 
telling his own story, and telling it with such fluency and intelligence to bring shame on the system that denied him equal rights. All the years learning to read and write, drinking deeply of the philosophies of the time, came together and allowed him to tell a story that made his autobiography a powerful argument against slavery. He wrote it so well that many racists at the time refused to believe that a former slave could have written it, spreading a false rumor that a white abolitionist had ghostwritten it. The book was so successful that Douglas had to flee the country to Britain for two years, fearing quite reasonably that his former master would seek to reclaim him now that everybody knew who he was. There, in Britain, he continued to speak before anti-slavery meetings and raise support for the cause. He was prosperous, famous, and safe in Britain, which had outlawed slavery a few years earlier in 1833. He could have stayed there and lived a very nice life. Indeed, his British admirers begged him to stay rather than returning to the dangers of America. But the fight was in America, and he could not in good conscience stay away when so many others were still enslaved. He did, however, accept the offer of British supporters to raise money to officially buy his freedom so that he would legally be free when he returned. Douglas returned to the United States and became increasingly prominent in the abolitionist movement. He also became an early and vocal supporter of the women's rights movement. He was the only black man to attend the Seneca Falls Convention, uh, the first major women's rights convention in the United States, where he advocated fervently that the convention adopt a plank calling for women's suffrage, the right to vote, uh, which was extremely controversial at the time. In fact, it barely passed even at a women's rights convention and probably in large part because of the eloquence of Douglas's arguments. His philosophy was summed up in the motto of the North Star, the abolitionist magazine he founded. Quote, Right is of no sex. Truth is of no color. God is the father of us all, and we are all brethren. He became embroiled in a great debate for the soul of the abolitionist movement. On the one side was his old mentor, William Lloyd Garrison. Garrison and his faction argued that the path to abolition was to reject the founding of the United States as a union of slaveholders and the Constitution as a pro-slavery document. Under the banner, No Union with Slaveholders, they burned copies of the Constitution, found the Declaration of Independence hypocritical, and called on abolitionists to refuse to hold offices in government. They argued that the founding was so corrupt that the only way to end slavery was to work from outside the system to bring it down. Essentially, they were advocating for the free states to secede from the Union with the slave states. At first, Douglas agreed with him. But as he grew older and became a student of United States history, he came to realize he and Garrison had been wrong. America's founding documents set forth principles that, if followed to their logical and moral conclusions, would result in the end of slavery. Abolitionists, rather than condemning those documents, should embrace them and demand that Americans live up to them. He said, quote, The Declaration of Independence is the ring bolt to the chain of the nation's destiny. So indeed I regard it. 
The principles contained in that instrument are saving principles. Stand by those principles, be true to them on all occasions, in all places against all foes, and at whatever cost. He enjoined his fellow abolitionists to look at the words themselves. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Nothing, he argued, could be more antithetical to slavery than the very first words in the Declaration. Garrison and his allies argued that the Constitution was pro-slavery and corrupt because slave owners had participated in the drafting, and because it didn't ban the slave train for 20 years, and because of the three-fifths compromise, which allowed slave states to count each slave as three-fifths of a free person for purposes of uh, apportioning congressional seats, the number of seats in Congress that each state would get. Now, Douglas argued that they missed the point. The question he said is, quote, not whether slavery existed in the United States at the time of the adoption of the Constitution. It's not whether slaveholders took part in the framing of the Constitution. It's not whether those slaveholders in their hearts intended to secure certain advantages in that instrument for slavery. The question he said was, quote, does the United States Constitution guarantee to any class or description of people in the country the right to enslave or hold as property any other class or description of people in that country? The answer, obviously, was that it does not. The Constitution never even mentions the word slavery, let alone protects it. He made what we would now call a textualist argument, meaning that any law, including a Constitution, must be judged on the basis of its actual words, because the words, and only the words, are what makes up the compromise that lawmakers actually agreed to. He said, quote, Again, it should be borne in mind that the mere text, and only the text, and not any commentaries or creeds written by those who wished to give the text a meaning apart from its plain reading, was adopted as the Constitution of the United States. It should also be borne in mind that the intentions of those who framed the Constitution, be they good or bad, for slavery or against slavery, are so respected so far and only so far as we find those intentions plainly stated in the Constitution. It would be the wildest of absurdities and lead to endless confusion and mischiefs if instead of looking on the written paper itself for its meaning, it were attempted to make us search it out in the secret motives and dishonest intentions of some of the men who took part in writing it. It was what they said that was adopted by the people, not what they were ashamed or afraid to say and really omitted to say. He pointed out that in apportioning representatives based on the number of free persons and three-fifths of other persons, the Constitution, without endorsing or even using the word slavery, actually provided an incentive to end the practice. He pointed out, quote, it is a downright disability laid upon the slaveholding states, one which deprives those states of two-fifths of their natural basis for representation. A black man in a free state is worth just two-fifths more than a black man in a slave state as a basis of political power under the Constitution. Therefore, instead of encouraging slavery, the Constitution encourages freedom by giving 
an increase of two-fifths of political power to free over-slave states. As for the 20-year hiatus on prohibiting states from importing such persons as they say fit to admit, even conceding this was a stealth reference to the slave trade, by its terms, it contemplates that the slave trade could be abolished as it was in 1808, exactly 20 years after the Constitution was drafted. The pro-slavery forces won 20 years, the abolitionists won the rest of all time, as Douglas put it. But again, it should be remembered that this very provision, if made to refer to the African slave trade at all, makes the Constitution anti-slavery rather than for slavery, for it says to the slave states, the price you will have to pay for coming into the American Union is that the slave trade, which you would carry on indefinitely out of the Union, shall be put an into in 20 years if you come into the Union. Secondly, if it does apply, it expired by its own limitation more than 50 years ago. This was Douglas speaking in his time. Now it would be more than 200 years ago. Thirdly, it is anti-slavery because it looked to the abolition of slavery rather than to its perpetuity. Fourthly, it showed the intentions of the framers of the Constitution were good, not bad. I think this is quite enough for this point, unquote. As for the last and arguably worst of the allegedly pro-slavery provisions of the Constitution, the Fugitive from Labor Clause, sometimes called the Fugitive Slave Clause, although the word slave is not mentioned, Douglas pointed out that, again, the pro-slavery forces failed to enshrine slavery in the words of the Constitution. Certainly, they wanted to say that slaves are not freed by escaping to another state. Certainly, they wanted a reference to persons legitimately bound in servitude, but they failed to get that. Instead, they wound up with a watered-down compromise language that refers obliquely to persons owing labor in one state not being discharged from it by moving to another state. Douglas argued, quote, "...the legal condition of the slave puts him beyond the operation of this provision. He is not described in it." He is a simple article of property. He does not owe and cannot owe service. He cannot even make a contract. It is impossible for him to do so. He can no more make such a contract than a horse or an ox can make one. This provision then only respects persons who owe service, and they only can owe service who can receive the equivalent and make a bargain. The slave cannot do that and is therefore exempted from the operation of the fugitive provision. Asked to concede that the provision nevertheless had operated to permit slaves to be recovered from free states, he replied, In all matters where laws are taught to be made the means of oppression, cruelty, and wickedness, I am for strict construction. I will concede nothing. The fact Southerners had misread the Constitution to serve their ends in no way undermined the truth of the words of liberty in that document itself. Quote, if the South has made the Constitution bend to the purposes of slavery, let the North now make that instrument bend to the cause of freedom and justice. If 350,000 slaveholders have, by devoting their energies to that single end, been able to make slavery the vital and animated spirit of the American Confederacy for the last 72 years, now let the freemen of the North who have the power in their own hands, and who can make the American government just what they think fit, resolve to blot out forever 
the foul and haggard crime, which is the blight and mildew, the curse and the disgrace of the whole United States. Douglas won the debate. Most abolitionists came to believe, as he did, that the values expressed in America's founding documents, liberty and justice, could and should be employed in the service of abolition. Most abolitionists came to believe that they could and should be part of the United States government, which was not inherently pro-slavery. Indeed, the founders had been very careful to keep slavery out of the Constitution. Because of that, most abolitionists came to believe that ending slavery within the Union, within the existing government, under the existing Constitution, was preferable to starting over from scratch. Douglas summed up his and the abolitionist movement's change of heart as, quote, When I was a child, I thought and spoke as a child. But the question is not as to what were my opinions 14 years ago, but what they are now. If I am right now, it really does not matter what I was 14 years ago. My position now is one of reform, not of revolution. I would act for the abolition of slavery through the government, not over its ruins. It's hard to overstate how significant this victory was. If the no union with slave owners radicals had won, then it might have been the North seceding from the South rather than the other way around. Had such a move succeeded, it's hard to imagine the United States surviving as a United States. You would have had a free country and a slave country, and the perverse result would have been that slavery would have continued for many years longer in the South. If not for Frederick Douglass, America might never have fulfilled the promise written in its founding documents. Frederick Douglass lived till 1895. He lived to see the end of slavery in America, to become an advisor to presidents, to write more famous books and give more famous speeches. He would preside over the unveiling of the Emancipation Memorial, commemorating an event he helped bring about, saying, Can any colored man or any white man friendly to the freedom of all men ever forget the night which followed the first day of January 1863, when the world was to see if Abraham Lincoln would prove to be as good as his word? Douglas would become the first African-American to receive a vote for president at the Republican National Convention of 1888. His example would change the minds of countless people as to what a former slave, what a black man could be by his own inspiring story, by his undeniable intellect, and by the simple message printed in every issue of his newspaper that God is the father of us all, and we are all brethren.